Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. The Climate Change Commission says we need fewer cows and more trees, millions and millions of them, if we are to meet our net emissions goals. Carbon farming appears to provide an effective mechanism to get there. Landowners plant trees on what was once pasture land and sell carbon credits through the emissions trading scheme or to involuntary carbon markets. Lovely. But should we be careful what we wish for? Are we creating a perverse incentive to simply carpet New Zealand in fast-growing and cheap pine forests rather than that then become home to pests or pose fire risks or smother native, ne- ne- regener- native regeneration? That's a mouthful. Who wrote this? Could carbon farming as we know it create a new set of problems down the line? Well, to answer these and many more questions, I'm joined by Dr. Sean Weaver, CEO and founder of ECOS, a pioneer in using carbon credits to fund indigenous forests at scale. Uh, Sean, it's taken a few technical glitches to get here, but here we are. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Vincent. It's great to be here. All right, well, let's talk about carbon farming. It sounds very romantic, little carbons being ushered around a paddock. How does it actually work? Yeah, I really like that image of carbon. Imagine little carbons being herded in one <laughs> to another. I've never seen it in that way, but I can see how the word makes it look like that. Yeah, so um, carbon farming is um, a way to create a commodity and sell it off land, but where that's not um, your traditional agricultural product or even your traditional forestry product, but where the actual product is a carbon credit or a, a, a series of a collection of carbon credits that you create through uh, reforestation and forest conservation. Um, so carbon farming can perhaps be well understood or best understood from a from a conservation point of view, because I come at this from a forest conservation perspective. Um, and what carbon farming does is it gives a forest conservationist like me an opportunity to help a landowner sell carbon credits instead of agricultural produce on land that might be better off in, in permanent native forest. Because when we think about forest conservation on private land, uh, those landowners who have land that perhaps should be back into long-term permanent native forest, imagine it's along waterways and steep erosion prone lands um, and, and places where there's biodiversity hotspots and wetlands and things like this. Now. Landowners, off, private landowners make a living off their land. And so if we're going to invite them to voluntarily retire that land and put it into conservation, only so many landowners can afford to do that <clears throat> without replacing lost revenue from, um, from something else. Um, and an example of that lost revenue would be the, the lost revenue from um, beef and lamb production on farmland. Because you think, you know, farmers, they're making a living uh, off their land and farmers who are uh, living in remote rural areas where it's steep marginal land, for example, the the revenue that they get from selling their agricultural product products is really important for their family. And they simply can't afford just to say, oh, well, I'll give up, you know, my revenue. It's like asking a person who's working in a city to give up their job because somebody wants to do something different. So if you can replace that revenue with something else, if you can replace that farming revenue with another type of revenue, then the landowner can carry on being a user of their land and benefiting from the the use of their land, but uh, conservation can can benefit as well. We We do have a subset of New Zealand landowners who are willing to retire paddocks without any... Uh, kind of replacement of lost revenue but if we're going to fix the climate change problem in New Zealand we're going to have to do things at a much bigger scale and so we need to find a way to bring on board people who just simply can't afford to lock up a paddock and um, let it go to bush. 
So you're thinking traditionally of something like the QE2 covenant scheme where parts of a farm might be set aside under a trust, under the QE2 trust, but never really to be used for commercial purposes. So you're, what you're saying is let's take marginal land or what's kind of difficult farming land of which there is some, as I understand it, more than a million hectares in New Zealand and find a way to incentivise particularly farmers, but they're not all farmers, but particularly farmers, to plant this in permanent forest. And by permanent, you're meaning no harvesting. Am I understanding that right? Well, permanently permanently a forest. Um, and and certainly the work that we do is about creating native forests that are going to be that native forest in perpetuity. Um, so carbon farming is a way for conservation to be self-financing. Yeah, so it's, it's, it enables conservation to pay for itself because as a forest conservationist, and I've been a forest conservationist since the late 1980s, and conservation costs money. Um, you, If you're going to establish a new forest, you need to buy the seedlings, you need to plant them, you've got to prepare the land, you've got to control pests and weeds, and you've got to manage that. And many people can afford to do that voluntarily over a small area. But yeah. if we're talking about reforesting the erosion-prone landscapes of New Zealand, and just in Hawke's Bay, for example, there's about 200,000 hectares of land in that category. Now, there simply isn't enough voluntary labour to put those trees in the ground. And if you want to get access to that number of seedlings, it's an industrial sort of scale activity. And so we need to find a way for conservation to be self-financing, for it to pay for itself. And carbon farming is exactly that. So explain the, the process. The, the farmer chooses the trees, and we'll, we'll talk in a minute about what kind of trees, but the farmer or the landowner chooses trees to plant. How do they then start issuing or, or claiming credits? What are the mechanisms for those credits to be issued and sold? Yeah, um, so to, to create carbon credits on farmland in New Zealand, you need to register that land in the emissions trading scheme. And to do that, you've got to check that the land is eligible to register in the emissions trading scheme. And that eligibility uh, criterion, the, the key one, is that it had to be not a forest uh, on the 31st of December 1989 and therefore established as a forest after that date. So it's essentially about new forests that have been established since 1990, essentially. And, and once it's eligible, then you've got to establish your forest um, and then apply to the Ministry of Primary Industries to register it as a carbon project. And that means you've got to prove to them that there's enough trees per hectare on that land to qualify as uh, the forest definition. Now, these could be seedlings for things that are going to be trees in the future, but mm -hmm. they need to be species that will grow to at least five metres in height um, and cover at least 30% of that to each hectare in a closed canopy. Um, and be a minimum of, on average, 30 metres wide across each hectare. And so once you meet those criteria and then provide the evidence and apply to the Ministry for Primary Industries to register, the, you know, there's a good probability that they will agree and then they'll register the land. That, so that means it's registered in the emissions trading scheme. The next thing is how do you create your carbon credits? Well, <clears throat> Trees are made of wood, and wood is made of carbon dioxide. And, uh, you know, the carbon in wood comes from the air. And that's why forests are reservoirs of, of carbon dioxide. They take carbon out of the air. They um, grab the sun's energy to then split water and rearrange the, the atoms to produce sugar. And... Um, and oxygen is a byproduct and it's released back to the air. And then that sugar is used in the tree for feeding the tree. But also some of those sugars are turned into long sugar chains and longer molecules and they become wood. And so wood is a type of sugar, if you like. Um, it's made out of the air and made out of the carbon dioxide portion of the air. And because of that, the carbon dioxide stored in your trees can be calculated. And this is how you create your carbon credits, is through the calculation of the volume of carbon dioxide taken up into your forest. Uh, and that will start off very slowly. You can imagine little wee seedlings, they're not going to take a lot of carbon dioxide out of the air. But as they develop their root systems and as they get older, 
they start to really kick in in terms of their growth rates. And growing forests are actively taking carbon dioxide out of the air and storing it as a solid in the form of wood. And even though trees have a limited lifespan, forests can last for thousands and thousands of years. We've got forests in New Zealand that have been forests for you know, many, many thousands of years. So um, this notion of a permanent forest is, is a very real thing. Um, and it's good for people to think about forests rather than trees when they're thinking mm. about carbon, carbon farming. Two questions. Some trees will grow faster and potentially at the expense of density. So some trees will be better, perhaps, perhaps they all have diff different characteristics anyway. Um, if we're going to, uh, as I understand it, we, we need a bunch of trees really quickly. So some trees are going to lend themselves more to carbon absorption than others. That's my first question. And then the second question is, eventually a forest must reach a point of stasis where it no longer is growing and is no longer absorbing. So is there a, a requirement to have some sort of harvesting or maintenance of the forest so that you continually get growth happening and absorption? So uh, two quite complicated questions, I'm sorry, but yeah. have a All go. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll answer the first one first. So the different types of tree that grow at different rates. I like to think about it as a carbon credit factory. So imagine your forest is a carbon credit factory. It produces carbon credits. And different types of forests will produce carbon credits at different rates. Um, so, for example, trees that are very, very dense, they're heavier. Yeah? So imagine a cubic metre of uh, balsa wood. It's very light. It's still a cubic metre, so the volume is still a metre cubed. But the number of atoms in there is not very big, and mm. so it's quite light. And so it doesn't have a lot of carbon in it. Now, that's quite different to a cubic metre of, say, oak, which is still the or same Cody. size. Or Cody. They've got a lot more atoms in them, so they're heavier. And oak will be heavier than Cody. Cody is a, um, a native conifer, um, and conifers tend to be... They're called softwoods. They tend to have a, a lower density than than mm. flowering trees. So um, things like um, or oak or eucalyptus or birch and these poplar and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So uh, your different forest types become different types of carbon credit factory that produce carbon credits at different rates. And um, that will influence the revenue able to be generated from that forest. And some... Also, some carbon credit factories, just using that metaphor, some of them are really expensive to build and some of them are really cheap to build. The mm. thing with exotic trees in New Zealand, and especially exotic trees that have benefited from 50 years of research and development in the timber industry, on the one hand, you've got cheap seedlings because there's a whole industry producing them at scale, so you've got the economies of scale. And on the other hand, you might have quite fast growth rates and pine falls into that category um, then on the other end of the spectrum you've got um, uh, plants that there isn't a big industry around their production and so there's not a huge economies of scale sector producing lots of seedlings and i'm thinking of natives here mm. um, and also that they grow slower um, and so when you're thinking about your carbon credit factory metaphor a pine carbon credit factory is low cost to make and it produces carbon credits at quite a fast rate. Whereas a native carbon credit factory is expensive to build and produces carbon credits at a relatively slow rate. And the, the native carbon credit factory has a much more challenging econo economic sort of profile compared to a pine one. And that's one of the reasons why the majority of carbon projects in the emissions trading scheme are pine projects because the mm. economic are much more... <laughs> In addition to that, we've had decades of research into Pinus radiata as this miracle tree that grows incredibly fast in New Zealand. And so what you've just described is a really strong disincentive to plant native forest, indigenous forest, and to bias towards Pinus radiata. And does that explain why there's so much planting going on right now? And should we be concerned about the implications of that much Pinus radiata being put in? It's a very good question, and I do think it's a potential problem. Last time I checked, when you grow pine trees, you can cut them down and sell the wood. 
and so the economics of planting pine trees is benefits also from the the timber mm. uh, well that actually comes back to our second question doesn't it which is harvesting yeah i'll come back to that i'll just talk initially about the um the yes. uh, the the first part um now i've just lost my train of thought <laughs> well we're well, talking about pines, oh yeah the problem about too many pine trees yeah i mean Yes, I mean, if people are motivated to maximise the return on their money invested, if they if people are in it only for the money, then then you will make more money more quickly in carbon farming if you plant pine trees. Okay, so that's depends on your motivation. If you're motivated, and I'm not motivated in that way, I need to make a living but not a fortune. So uh, I need to. I'm trying to find ways to do good that is enough to make enable me to make a living. Um, and then, and, and, but maximize the beneficial gains that can come from that project. And so if you're motivated by, let's say, forest conservation and indigenous uh, reforestation, then the question is, well, can it pay for itself at the very least? Can, can the carbon credit factory produce enough carbon credits and be sold at a price so that you can cover all of the costs of forest establishment, all the costs of conservation management, pest and weed control, so that you've got restored landscapes in New Zealand. So these are two different purposes. One is to make maximum money. The other is to make maximum conservation gains. And ECOS is motivated for the second one, which is why we focus on natives. Uh, and and that, that's the, the, the key difference between the two. Now, if we want to uh, have an emissions trading scheme that helps to permanently reforest native forests in New Zealand over areas that really need forests on them that aren't going to be harvested, then we need to think carefully about how we structure our nationwide policies on carbon farming. And if it were me, if I was the minister, I would be, I would be saying, well, we do need low-cost carbon credits for some people who need to buy them because they have to. We also need some higher cost carbon credits are going to cause a lot more good because we've also got to build climate resilient landscapes they're going to um, enable us to survive better in storms and they tend to be landscapes they've got trees on that aren't being harvested uh, we also have biodiversity challenges and we need to uh, get as much biodiversity back on the landscapes and it's really to me about a balance between those two things rather than all of one or all of the other Hmm. There's a middle path here, and um, I've also made some policy recommendations along those lines, which I'm happy to share with you, uh, but it would require me first to talk to you about the um, the two different carbon markets in New Zealand, one being the compliance carbon market, where people have a regulatory obligation to buy, uh, they're required by government and by law to buy carbon credits, and the other market being the voluntary carbon market, which is the, the voluntary uh, zero carbon uh, market where people and businesses and products choose to be zero carbon, and that's a voluntary undertaking. Um, and if you like, I'll 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 talk about that now, or we can come back to I'll, that. I'd like to come back to that because there's still the question of the disincentive for uh, people to landowners to plant if they can't harvest. And at the moment, the market for harvesting timber tends to still be around pinus radiata. Um, could you explain what happens if you are a carbon farmer? Are you now punished if you harvest the trees in some capacity, whether it's selective harvesting or, or clear felling? What, what are the implications of harvesting timber if you've entered into the emissions trading scheme? Yeah, very, very good question. Remember I said that trees are made of carbon dioxide and as they grow, they take that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and stick it into a solid in the form of wood. First a liquid as sugar, um, you know, sap, <clears throat> and then as a solid in the form of wood. But when you cut trees down, they tend to die, and the wood tends to decompose or burn. Uh, it either decomposes in landfill or it burns or a combination. Either way, it'll, it'll decompose. And so both decomposition, which is essentially things are getting eaten by bacteria and fungi, uh, and combustion, both of them are forms of respiration. In other words, they are releasing the energy stored in that wood um, and then and then releasing carbon dioxide as as those bugs, um, you know, the 
or actually insects and bacteria and fungi eat the, the wood, they're going to respire, they're going to breathe, and they're going to breathe out CO2 and get mm. the energy from consuming that wood. And, of course, when you heat, feel the warmth of a fire, if you're burning wood, um, you're feeling the sun's energy that's just been stored for a while in that wood, but the what the, the smoke is also going to include an emission, which is mm. going to include lots of CO2. So whenever you do harvesting of forests, you're going to create emissions. And so if you've got a plantation harvest cycle where you plant trees across many hectares and then you come back 28 years later and cut them all down and then you plant them again and then you cut them all down 30 years later and so on in an ongoing cycle. Um, your, your, your carbon benefits to the atmosphere are the average carbon stock change between a non-forest landscape and a plantation harvest cycle. Hmm. And what that essentially is, is halfway up the sawtooth of the growth harvest, growth, harvest, growth, harvest. Imagine halfway up that sawtooth is the average long-term carbon stocks on that landscape, which becomes a, essentially an industrial plantation forestry landscape. And the carbon credits are only issued once in that first rotation. Okay, so and it's because you've changed the average carbon stored on the land from a non-forest to a forest landscape. Hmm. If, on the other, if on the other hand, you either never harvest or you only harvest in a very low you know, low density, light, you know, sustainable forest management, continuous canopy harvesting, then your average carbon stocks are not going to just be halfway up that, um, that uh, there's not a sawtooth for a start, and it's not going to just be half of the, the fully mature forest, it'll be all of the fully mature forest. And so mm. you've got, um, uh, uh, you store a lot more carbon in the landscape if you, if you end up with a permanent forest that can self-sustain in perpetuity. Um, and, and that's what native forests are. They, they self-sustain in perpetuity with a much bigger carbon stock in the end. As a manager of permanent forests, are you required to uh, maintain them in some capacity by uh, creating light wells? Uh, let's leave aside the pest management, which is kind of obvious, but to maintain a healthy native forest and to continue this uh carbon farm are you required to maintain them in some way by harvesting or, or selective logging yeah good question i mean carbon sequestration which is the take the the absorption of carbon dioxide from the air and into a forest carbon reservoir yeah a, a, a forest that's storing carbon the forest will take carbon actively out of the air and store it and increase in its volume uh, in biomass and, and, and carbon volume for a limited period because forests like people don't grow forever you know I stopped growing in my early 20s and inputs and outputs I won't go into the detail but inputs and out outputs are balanced out and so even though I'm still alive and thriving and developing I'm no longer growing. And that's also true of forests. They they grow for a period and then they stop growing and then they just recycle their carbon. Mm. They become essentially carbon neutral. And for native forests, that process takes about 200 years from a grass, sort of grassy landscape to a mature native forest that is no longer growing anymore. And the window, the time frame when you could do a carbon farming on that land would be that 200 years of mm. transition. But the last 50 years, and certainly probably even the last 100 years, the carbon growth rate is going to be quite slow. The biggest mm. growth rates are early on in the first, certainly within the first 100 years, and more likely between sort of year 30 and year 90 might be the, the fastest growing period for a native forest. Whereas if you're an exotic forest, you think about the hare and the tortoise. The native forest is like the tortoise, right? It still won the race. The hare is like the exotic forest, which grows much more quickly early on, but then it, it also finishes its growth earlier. Um, and so then you've got the problem of, well, with your exotic forest, how are you going to maintain it forever, at least as a tall forest? Because if they're all the same age and they all get to 130 years and that's the lifespan of pine trees, then they're all going to fall over because, you know, there's nothing necessarily there to replace them. So as a forest manager, one needs to think about, well, what is the long-term sustainability of that forest? 
And if it's a native forest, well, nature looks after that anyway, because native forests self-regenerate. And the way they do that is by big tall trees fall over and create a gap in the canopy and a whole lot of light gets down to the lower mm. reaches of the forest. And then a lot of seedlings that really like that high light environment grow very quickly and occupy that gap. And then, you know, that cycle takes hundreds of years, but that's mm. how the cycle operates in mm. a kind of mosaic. Whereas if you've got a single aged exotic forest, you're going to need to do some management intervention to perpetuate that exotic forest. And one way to do that is through continuous canopy management where you create a multi-aged forest by either creating those gaps and then planting in those gaps say or taking out a percentage of the forest maybe 10 percent after 20 years say and then replacing that with a new generation and then repeating that cycle periodically like every five or ten years and then you create a multi-aged forest where you've always got wood coming out of that forest in perpetuity, but you're never clear filling that area. And New Zealand doesn't do that much. I mean, we've got hardly any examples of that in New Zealand. Whereas if you go to Europe, that's a standard way of doing forestry, uh, a continuous canopy approach. And I think carbon farming now and for the next 30 years or so is a wonderful opportunity for us to create a multi-aged continuous canopy forestry in this country ideally then move away from clear fill harvesting and sensitive catchments because when we do that we expose those catchments to really quite high risk when it comes to cyclone damage and flood damage and all that debris that can come down and wreck Tolaga Bay and damage mm. Wairoa and places like that. So let's imagine uh, that Nested inside the climate crisis is also our biodiversity crisis. And as a as a lover of indigenous forests and as a conserver of indigenous forests, you would like to see ultimately so much more land return to indigenous healthy uh, forests. And it it seems to me what you're describing is a couple of ways to get there. One is through starting out with an intention to grow an indigenous forest and managing that process through uh, a mechanism which you're going to describe soon, I imagine, around voluntary carbon markets. Mm -hmm. The other is through some sort of hybrid model where you are planting these fast-growing exotics uh, that might re return a, a higher price um, and then manage the way into some sort of longer-term indigenous native forest. Would that be a fair yeah. description of the two models? Perfect description. Yeah. So, um, so, so then I'd, I'd explain the mechanism then for for both of them. Yeah. Sure. Well, the the emissions trading scheme is about well, certainly the forestry end of the emissions trading scheme. The supply side of that market is about producing carbon credits through forests, and you can produce those carbon credits and sell them to um, the the buyers who have to buy in the market, the compliance buyers in the in the emissions trading scheme. So that would be the upstream energy sector entities that are, you know, the fuel companies and mm -hmm. electricity companies and whatnot. Um, but you can also sell to voluntary buyers who want to go zero carbon. Um, I'll come back to that. The main thing here is that the, the, the emissions trading scheme can create carbon credits that can be bought by people who have to buy in the emissions trading scheme. So it's not necessarily just the voluntary market that does native carbon. Mm -hmm. I'll come back to that. Um, so to get a native forest, there's two main, sort of three, two main ways, but a third vari a variation on one of them. One way is to let nature do the planting, which is natural regeneration. Um, the other way is to get people to do the planting. Um, and the third way would be to let nature do the planting and people to do a little bit of enrichment planting to speed it up. But imagine there's two broad ways. Nature does the planting and people do planting. When nature does the planting, uh, she doesn't send the bill. So the capital expenditure, you know, what it costs to build your carbon credit factory is very low because nature did it for free because birds and wind dispersed seed and that landscape grew into regenerating bush and then that bush gradually matured into forest. Mm. 
So that's the first way. The second way is when when you sounds when like you, that would take a long time. And it would does, be, but, but uh, there's lots and lots of land in that category right now, all across New Zealand, where nature established the forest, and the landowner who owns that forest might be scratching their head, thinking, "Hmm, how am I going to fund pest and weed control in that native bush block I've got back there?" And carbon farming is the solution to that because mm -hmm. carbon farming mm -hmm. means that you get a revenue stream so that you can fund pest and weed control yeah. and be a carbon farmer and conservation manager on those blocks. Because if you have to fund pest and weed control out of your farming, then you're going to reduce the profitability of your farming. Or if you have to fund it out of your life savings, you know, you've got to fund it somehow. And if you can fund it through carbon farming, then that's a way for conservation to be self-financing. And right now there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of hectares of regenerating well, hundreds, there's thousands and thousands, probably at least tens of thousands of hectares of this type of land in New Zealand right now that it, where nature did the planting, it's eligible to register in the emissions trading scheme because it's established after 1990, um, you know, because the farmer the closed the gate back in, I don't know, mm -hmm. 1992, and then eventually it became a forest and it's bush now. Um, and there's an opportunity to register that in the emissions trading scheme and get that revenue stream so that you can then be a good conservation manager on that land. So that's there now. Um, the other the other pathway is where people need to do the planting. And that the, the capital costs, in other words, the cost to create your asset, um, your carbon credit factory, are much higher than if nature did it for free because you've got to buy the seedlings and you've also got to prepare the land and then you've got to get people to put those seedlings in the ground. Mm. And if you want to do that without any cost, you could probably grow some of your own seedlings and then do the plantings and voluntary labour. But you can only do that over a relatively small area. Whereas if we want to reforest 200,000 hectares in Hawke's Bay of erosion-prone land, there's not enough voluntary labour and voluntary seedling supplies for that. So you're going to have to get a nursery involved and nurseries tend to need to get paid for their services. And so you're going to need to buy those seedlings and need to pay people to put them in the ground. And and that that's where your capital costs of establishing your native forest can get quite expensive because native seedlings are much more expensive than most exotic yeah. seedlings. Yeah. Um, but partly because there, there isn't a 50 years of timber industry that's generated economies of scale for uh, for that seedling price and also many native spe species need slightly they're not bare rooted when you plant them out whereas pine trees can be bare rooted so you can fit lots and lots of them in your backpack and so it's a relatively low cost per tree to plant them whereas natives have got soil around them and so you can't fit so many in your backpack and so the cost per seedling to get them in the ground is is much higher and when you add those costs up it it's a considerably higher than than a than a uh, an exotic forest in most cases, but but it can still work. Uh, it just depends on the planting model. And what we do with landowners is we help them design the planting model so that the economics works, so that they can afford to do it. So much of New Zealand nature is resistant to um, easy recovery, isn't it? We have birds that can't fly. <laughs> we have trees that are delicious to possums. Yep. Now you've got some brilliant examples of uh, these projects at work. Tell us about some of them. Um, they're beautiful stories, really, of people who have been motivated to see their land recover, but also still need an income. Mm. That's right. No, we're we're thrilled to be involved in this um, this sector. The, the, we help with two types of project. One where there's natural regeneration. The other one where people need to establish the forest. And in both cases, the economics need to work, otherwise the landowner can't afford to do it. Yeah. Um, if, if, because the economics of native forest establishment are quite challenging, in other words, it's hard for it to pay for itself because of the slow growth rates and the expensive establishment costs. If, if a landowner says, look, Sean, um, it doesn't break even, like it, it runs at a loss and I can't do that. I've got to at least break even. I've got to pay for all my costs through the carbon credit sales and the natives on their own might not do that. And they say, how can I, you know, what can you do about this? And I'd say, well, what we could do then is imagine you've got 100 hectares and you want it all in native forest. We'd say, well, if the 100 hectares of native only plantings doesn't work economically, 
then we'll introduce a, an exotic woodlot as part of the project. And we'd put in, of that 100 hectares, we might start by putting in 5% of the area in the, in, the, in, the, in the design of it, the model, mm. maybe 5%, and see if that will bring the economics into a break-even point. And if not, then add another hectare and another and another until we get to that point where the landowner says, great, that'll work. Because mm -hmm. if they need to, if they need to pay, if they need revenue to replace their lost beef and lamb revenue, then that's what I mean by breaking even. Mm -hmm. And then that will enable us to design the project so that they've got rocket fuel in the carbon engine to drive the economics that come from the exotics. And then you've got biodiversity fuel in the carbon engine to drive all of the co-benefits, all of the, the reasons why we're doing this in the first place. And the role of the exotics, there's, there's two roles that the exotics play. They, their role is to fund the natives and the other role is to fund the natives. That's the only reason why they're there, yeah. is to create the economics so that it can work. And then once we've got that exotic woodlot, we say to the landowner, do you want that exotic woodlot to transition to 100% natives through time? Most of the time they do, in which case we would put in those exotics and imagine we put in 10 hectares of exotics in a 100 hectare project. Then that 10 hectares of exotics, we would start to harvest and replace them after about 15 years, we would take a percentage, probably 10% of that area. I'm talking about the 10% of the total, so 10 hectares. Take 10% of that 10 hectares, so one hectare, and we'd cut, we'd harvest it and then replace it with natives. Imagine mm -hmm. it's in strips or in a corridor. And then five years later, we'd do the same, harvest it and replace it with natives. Five years later, do the same. And if you do the maths, you'll find that in 60 years, it's a, it's a full native forest, but you've had the economics work in the early years. And then by 60 years time, then the, the background growth rates of your native forests are growing, they're doing very well and they're producing good carbon credits per hectare by that stage. But you funded those that first 50 years through the inclusion Your, of exotics. This is, it, it is a great piece of maths and I completely buy the logic of it. Do you have evidence that it actually is happening? Have you been operating long enough uh, has this model been operating long enough that you can point to the to it as a real life case study and say here it does actually work? Just point to Europe, European forestry. This this kind of forestry is standard practice in Europe. It's less common in New Zealand because we've had clear cut pine plantations on our sort of as mm. the mainstream. Okay, so there's not many examples of this, but there are some examples around the country. And also, when, when it's not rocket science to think, okay, we'll plant an exotic forest, and there's plenty of proof of concept of that, plant 10 hectares of eucalypts or pine trees or oak, that, that can work, it's not a big deal. And then harvest a hectare of that, and then replant it in natives. Mm. It's not really a, this is not really that complicated. Um, and if you choose the right natives that can grow in the shelter of those neighbouring exotic trees, I mean, if you just, anyone who drives around the country and then starts to tune their eye into, well, what's growing on the edge of that plantation? And once you start watching what's happening, you'll see lots of natives growing, because it's happening right now all around the country. There's lots of natives growing on the edge of pine forests and on the edge of eucalypt forests. Um, plantations are all, all the way around the country. So uh, we know that natives can grow next to uh, exotics, and especially if they've got their own area and it's just for them. Um, and then if you then harvest the next 10% of that area and replace it with natives, that that will also work. I mean, the only reason why it might not work is if there's a fire or something, um, but that's true of any kind of management. So I, I don't believe, I mean, I don't believe we need to say, okay, we've got 50 years of proof of concept of you know, transitioning uh, an exotic woodlot to a native forest before we're willing to go and do it. Um, you know, we're in a climate emergency. And in a climate emergency, we need to behave like it's an emergency and we've got to get cracking and do things that are going to help. And some people are saying, well, let's just cover the land in pine trees. That'll help. And I'm saying, well, you know, that's part of the puzzle. But I believe a significant part of the puzzle needs to be getting native forests on our landscapes. And if doing taking on some risk by doing something that's a bit innovative is is something that is worth doing, then sure, we're, mm. we're willing to do that. And we're finding landowners and investors are all saying, yeah, this sounds good to me. Because mm. forestry, any forestry is a risky investment. Nobody can tell if there's going to be 
no storm or one storm on one date that's going to damage the forest or a fire. So it's an inherently risky area anyway. Um, and if you're sensible and you do it on a scientific basis and you do it carefully and you involve local ecological knowledge in the design of the project and local forestry knowledge in the design of the project, then you reduce the risk of it not working. Mm. And, and you think there's every reason why we can't have, uh, well, we can, excuse me, uh, while we, there's no, let me rephrase that. There's every reason to expect that we could have a mixed model of exotics and natives growing together and managed over time to eventually end up with a largely indigenous forest on private yes. land. Absolutely, absolutely. And in the meantime, especially if you're focusing on erosion-prone lands, imagine landscapes that are currently under pasture sending lots and lots of sediment into streams and damaging waterways. If you then were to put any forest type on that land which is going to be maintained in perpetuity, that sedimentation will drop. So you're already into a benefit. That landscape mm. will also be more resilient to climate change. So you're already in a benefit there. You have, uh, because you're using some exotics, you're then getting a whole lot of native only areas. Ideally, the majority of your plantings are going to be pure native and you're going to use the exotics to fund that. So you're getting that. So that's an advantage. And plus, you know, Having wood is kind of handy, and I like wood. I put indoors, and you know, there's nothing evil about wood. So having exotic woodlots is a clever trick. Also, for people who want to have a long-term um, revenue stream on their land, imagine it's Maori landowners who say, "Well, we're not, never going to sell our land, and we want people several generations down the track to be able to have a, an income off this land that we're transitioning into native forest." Well, one way to do that is to also plant trees, species, that could be sustainably managed and harvested in the future. Imagine forested landscapes covered in totra, where in from year 100 onwards, you've got an opportunity to harvest very small volumes of very highly valued timber um, and then maintain that canopy in perpetuity. Mm. You know, this mm. is a fantastic opportunity to create a future um, that is climate resilient, biodiverse, and, uh, and low carbon. It, you know, it's such an exciting opportunity. It's almost as if you're saying that the climate crisis is going to give us a, um, a lever to, to, to solve the biodiversity crisis, at least in terms of Nahiri, in terms of forestry. Yes, definitely. Um, this is why I'm in the game. I mean, I used to teach environmental science at Victoria University, and I used to teach the climate change part of that course every year. And I, I crossed what I, what I call the, the holy shit threshold in about 2004 when I realised how, how much of a problem climate change really is. Because as a scientist, I don't like taking somebody else's word for it, for anything. I prefer to know for myself what, whether something's actually a problem or not. And I did my own due diligence um, that year. and Because I'm, I'm not a climate I'm a forest ecologist and a forest conservationist, and biodiversity is my thing. But then I realised, wow, the biggest killer of biodiversity ever in the history of the planet has been climate change. Hmm. Now, all the big extinction events are climate change events, and we're in one right now. And I realised, wow, all of the good that I've done for biodiversity conservation could be wiped out if I don't put my shoulder to the climate change wagon. Hmm. And so I realised I needed to, to do that. And also there's an awful lot of suffering for humans coming down the barrel under climate change because climate change really means drought in a lot of parts of the world and drought means reduced agricultural produce and reduced food supply and that means hardship and conflict yeah. uh, and suffering and, and an earth that can't sustain 8 billion people and so there's an awful lot of work to be done in that climate change agenda uh, anyway but in any smart climate change response measure you're going to produce co-benefits that are good for people and good for biodiversity and good for waterways and good for many, many things. And mm. that's called integrated sustainable land management. And this is an opportunity to do that. And up until now, we've had to beg to governments and philanthropists for the money to look after the place, whereas carbon markets give us an opportunity to not have to go to those sources of finance because there's a mm. deeply limited amount of finance in the grant space globally and nationally to look after the planet, whereas in the private sector, 
there's not an unlimited amount of money, but it's in much, much bigger. That's where the trillions of dollars are. You think of the institutional investment community globally manage about $100 trillion a year in, 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 in funds. Mm. Um, we only need a portion of that. And in order to get a portion of that, we need something that can work to create a cash flow so that people can borrow and then pay that debt back. And, and, and that means that every new project that we do, we don't need to ask the government for money. We don't need billion trees funding because that's ended anyway. We, we just go to an investor and say, look, would you loan us your money and get it back with interest? And they'll say, sure. I mean, it's not as easy as that, but if you can't pay it back, they're definitely going to say no. Um, and so this gives us a chance to unlock very large sums of money from private sector institutional investment community like pension funds, um, like sovereign wealth funds, and like corporate investment, where people who are in those sectors are saying, hmm, uh, we need to look after the climate system and we need biodiversity conservation and we need to make climate resilient landscapes and look after mm. people. Mm. Why don't we fund, why don't we put some of our portfolio into what ECOS is doing and people like us are doing because we'll get our money back with interest and we'll cause a whole lot of good things to happen along the way. I love the way that <clears throat> the innovation that is coming out of the response to climate change is opening up whole new ways of doing things. And you think about the, the forestry model has been so binary in New Zealand. It's either clear felling forestry or it's tied up in some sort of QE2 protection for conservation purposes. What you're describing is is a, a new way, a third way, where forests are grown for multiple benefits, including commercial outcomes, funded by commercial means, not just through the good will of governments or or private conservationists. Exactly. And and what this does is it doesn't, it's not an alternative to grant funding. It's a way of saying, let's, let's not spend grant money where we could otherwise fund it through um, private investment. Because then the grant money that is available in the world and in the country can then be spent um, where, where markets can't help. And this is the reason why I got involved in carbon markets. It's, it's because I knew that wasn't enough grant money to do the job. And it allows us to add value to that grant funding pool. And that way we can maximise the beneficial impact of every dollar spent. You can imagine a tree of opportunity and at the low end of the tree, the low hanging fruit are easy to harvest. And that's really the job ideally of markets to harvest those fruit. Whereas, and if markets do that job, then grants can be reserved for the fruit that are too high on the tree for markets to, to harvest. So what I'm talking about here is imagine carbon projects, forest carbon projects where you can at least pay back any borrowed money, yeah? So it breaks even on a commercial footing mm. um, because you're, you know, you, you, you're designing the project so that it can do that. But there are some project types that need a much higher planting density and maybe they're not even tree species. Maybe it's all of our wetlands. And in wetlands, we don't want a forest. We want sedges and marshland and, you know, we want things mm. that are, are much lower to the ground. So there'll never be a carbon forest. And we need our grant funding to focus on these things, which where, where uh, the yeah. carbon market can't help, or where, and the way we do it, is that we work with, with, with investors and landowners where we also fund the wetland project, which is not going to generate any carbon credits, but we're funding the planting of natives that are not even trees to rehabilitate that wetland as part of a bigger project where the whole project is funded commercially. So this is commercial conservation, and it's not commercial in the sense that, oh, Sean wants to make a lot of money. It's about Sean wants to cause a lot of good through a market mechanism, and um, and that's what the word commercial means. I mean, commercial just means paying paying your debt back or, or, or uh, yeah. recovering yeah. your costs. It doesn't – I mean, there's many people in the NGO sector and community sector who think the word commercial means exploitation. Now, it can do. That's absolutely true, but it doesn't by definition mean exploitation. I mean, growing mm. organic food is, is commercial. Yeah, so, mm. um, yeah. Yeah, well, I think the, um, you know, what you've just described is a very, is, you know, I've learned a lot about carbon farming as a result of this, and I, I feel like that you've just done a brilliant explanation of it. But I also uh, think that we need to give people an opportunity to engage with you. So this is probably a good opportunity to tell us about ECOS just very quickly. How do people get hold of you? And, um, and what is your business? Sure. 
Um, well, ikos, the word ikos comes from the ancient Greek word oikos, which is the common ancestor of the modern word ecology and the modern word economy. And so we're a marriage of ecology and economics. Um, and we work on the basically an environmental financing using market mechanisms, but it's essentially a fair trade version of, of carbon farming that we do on the supply side of the market. So uh, think about us as a fair trade carbon supplier um, because we offer premium prices to landowners because we need to if those projects are going to break even, plus they're delivering lots of benefits that are better than the benefits that you'll get just from, from exotics. Hmm. Um, so we're like a philanthropist that's using a market mechanism. But on the demand side of the market, we help businesses and products and organisations and individuals go zero carbon. Um, and that means measuring carbon footprints, helping people design their carbon reduction plans so that they can drive down their emissions. And then if they want to go zero carbon, they, they need to offset the emissions that they couldn't reduce. And then we supply them carbon offsets from our landowners that we're working with that are producing these top shelf single malt carbon credits. Yep. Um, and, um, and so we work on both sides of the market, uh, of the carbon market. And it's mm. a wonderful experience to have all of these fantastic businesses doing wonderful things coming to us saying, Ecos, can you help us go zero? And we say, sure. And then they, we link them with the landowners that we're working with. And there's a, a nice kind of life cycle, if you like, of yeah. um, doing good at both ends. And so if people want to find out about Ecos, just go to the Ecos website, um, E-K-O-S for Ecos, um, and you'll find us. And uh, if you want to go zero carbon, um, there's an email address there, ecos at ecos.co.nz, and then one of our team will pick it up. If you want Fantastic. to be a carbon carbon farmer, do the same, and, um, you know, we can help. I think I first heard about you because you were on the fridge, Sean, of our son who bought us a Christmas present saying we're now a carbon neutral family for all of 2021. So um, good advertising. Teenagers know about you. Hey, Sean, it's been amazing talking to you. I really appreciate the time you've invested in explaining carbon farming to us. And uh, we look forward to there's so much we haven't covered. So um, I might have you back to keep sure. going. Thanks for your time. And uh and good luck out there. Thank you, Vincent. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week. And no hurrah.